If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, join me in the little book, Old Testament book of Haggai. Haggai chapter 1. When I was in high school, I had zero desire to be a pastor. It's not because I didn't like church. It's not because I didn't like being a pastor's kid. My dad's a pastor. Um, I just didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't, for whatever reason, I didn't want to live in that Christian shadow, that leadership shadow. I, I didn't want the pressure. Um, it seemed, too, a lot that my dad was, was gone a lot. And, and so there were different reasons. But it, I just didn't want to be a pastor. So much so that um, I, I wanted to go as far away from home for college as I possibly could. Um, and so I, I'm from north central Ohio, north of Columbus, and so I was looking at colleges all the way out in Washington State, not because they had the major that I was interested in, just because it was far, far away. And in high school, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll go into broadcasting. I wanted, so I was thinking, of, I like sports. I thought maybe I'll do, go into sports broadcasting and radio and, and all of that. So that was kind of what I was pursuing. And, and it was great. And, and there's nothing wrong with that field anyway, but it was, it was wrong for me because I knew deep down that God was impressing upon me to be a pastor, to go into church ministry. I knew that deep down, but kind of like Jonah, if you know his story, I ran. I ran away or was thinking I was going to run away, wanted to run away, wanted to get as far away from that as, as I could. And so I, I be, really became about me and my, what my dream was, my vision, my priorities, was making excuses. Uh, my, my parents went to a Christian college. My sister was at the same college that my parents went to. And I said, I am not going to that college. There's no way. And so it came time for me to have to decide what am I going to do after, after high school. And it was the summer before my senior year, and I went to a Christian camp. And I have no clue what the guy spoke on at the Christian camp. I cannot to this day remember anything that he said. But I do remember that the Spirit of God was really heavy on my heart during that week. And through that camp, the Spirit of God really exposed a lot of my excuses for ignoring what I knew deep down God had want, wanted me to pursue and what he wanted me to do. And so really at the end of that week, I had just kind of surrendered and I had said, okay, God, I'm done running. I'm done with the excuses. If this is what you want me to do, if this is what you want me to pursue, I'll, I'll do it. So guess which college I ended up going to? The same one my parents went to and the same one my sister was at. And that was about 30 years ago, and I'm still here. All right, pastoring. Question for you. What's something that you know God has told you to do? or something that he has impressed upon you to do, or impressed upon you to stop doing, but you just haven't done it yet. I want you to pull out your phone, and I want you to text whatever that is to yourself. Or if you have an app, notes app on your phone, I want you to write that down. What is it? What's something that you know God has told you to do? He's maybe said it in his word. And, and, 
and you just haven't done it yet. I want you to think about that. I want you to write that down. Maybe for some of us, it's being baptized. You're a follower of Jesus, and you know that you should do that, and God's been impressing upon that to you to, to take that, that step of faith and publicly declare that you are a follower of Christ. Maybe it's a conversation that you need to have with someone. Um, maybe, it's, um, maybe it's a relationship that's unhealthy that you're in, and you know it's not honoring God, and God has been impressing upon you to end that relationship, and you just haven't done it yet. Maybe it's with your money. Maybe God has been impressing upon you to give, to give financially to the church or to those in need, and for whatever reason, you, you just haven't done it. Maybe for others of you, God has been impressing upon you, like the, the man Owen, who is attending the house church. He and you know that God's been saying, you need to just surrender to me. You need to just surrender and receive Jesus. And maybe that's what it is. But you've just been ignoring that voice or putting it off. What's something that you know God has told you to do, God has said for you to do, or stop doing, and you just haven't done it yet? That's going to be important as we come into the first chapter of this little book, Haggai. Now, for a quick refresher about this little book, Haggai, the key event in the book of Haggai is the rebuilding of God's temple. And this temple has been in ruins for 70 years. So when we begin reading the story in Haggai, the temple of God has been demolished and destroyed from an enemy invasion, and it is still in ruins. And the temple represented God's visible presence with his people. And so if you were God's people living in the time of Haggai in the city of Jerusalem at this time, not having a temple would have symbolized to you that God is, is not with us. And so God's heart, as we learned also last week, is to be with his people. So God says, I want you to know that I'm with you, and so I want you to rebuild this temple. And so he's told them to do this. And that's the key event we see in the book of Haggai. But we also talked about how when you read this little book, you should look for Jesus in this little book of Haggai, because Jesus told us to. Jesus said, you should look for me in all that Moses wrote and all that the prophets wrote. I'm there. He said that in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 27. So somewhere, somehow, in this little two-chapter book in the Old Testament, we should see Jesus. We should see Jesus here. And then also, when we come to this little book, we, we need to understand that it's really like a caution sign. This, this message that God gives to his people in the events of Haggai is really like a caution sign that causes us to pause and to think about the direction our life is headed in. He says, consider your ways to his people. He says that over and over again. And his point is, I want you to stop and think about the direction of your life. Are you really putting me first? And the ESV study Bible describes this well when it says this, it says the book of Haggai is a relevant and timeless book on the need to put God's work first in one's life. In Haggai's day, rebuilding the temple would be the visible sign of the people's determination to put God first. If we could, let's go ahead and put that on the screen one more time. The book of Haggai is a relevant and timeless book on the need to put God's work first in one's life. In Haggai's day, rebuilding the temple would be the visible sign of the people's determination to put God first. And so this morning, as we 
explore the first chapter of Haggai, here, here's the truth I want us to see. It's, it's a known truth. This is a familiar truth to, to most, most of us this morning, but I think it's a truth that, that we often forget and we struggle to live. And so here it is, as we consider our priorities this morning, here, here's the truth that we're going to unpack this morning from chapter 1. No excuses. This is the truth. No excuses for His glory. Put God first. No excuses for His glory. Put God first. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Haggai chapter 1. And I, I think the first thing we see is, is this this truth of no excuses. And what we're going to see in these first five verses of Haggai is God is going to confront his people and he's going to confront the excuses that they've been giving for not rebuilding the temple, for not putting him first. And so join me as we read verses 1 through 5 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And thus says the Lord of hosts. So this is God speaking to his people. And God says, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Again, God speaks and he says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, Consider your ways. Here I think we see God confronting his people and exposing their excuses for not putting him first. And, and the first excuse I think we see is in verse 2. It says, the Lord of hosts says, these people say the time has not yet come. And the first excuse is this, not right now, God. Not right now, not yet. Not right now. I'll get baptized some other time. I'll have that neighbor in my home over for dinner so they can see Jesus. I'll, I'll do that later. This is the excuse of not right now. The, the timing isn't right, God. It's just, you know, I know I need to end that relationship. I know it's not bring, bringing you honor and glory, but just, just not right now, Lord. Let me ask you, for those of us that have kids, how would you feel if you told your kids to do something and they said, not right now, Dad? Not right now, Mom. This is the excuse of not right now. And this is what God's people were saying. Not yet, God. We'll put you first later. But then he goes on in verses 3 through 5, and he exposes another, another excuse. And in verse 4, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What's God saying there? He's saying this is the excuse of personal comfort. This is, hey, they're living in paneled houses. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with, with those things unless they become your priority over pursuing God's priorities. It's personal comfort. This excuse of choosing to be comfortable, pursuing your own comfort instead of doing what you know God wants you to do. This is, God, it's just uncomfortable. It's messy. It's hard. I'll do it later, God. It's, it's the excuse of it's just uncomfortable. Or I choose my comfort over what you want me to do, God. I'll have those people. I mean, if we do this, God, it's just going to be hard, messy. 
All these different things, right? Let me get, let me get established first, God. Let me get us on a financial state, you know, get stability, and then I'll go and do what you want me to do, right? But then I think there's another excuse that we see, and this is down in verse 9. In verse 9, God says this, Then I said, oh, excuse me, verse 9, he says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. And this is the, that, that phrase busies himself means running around. Just running around. This is the excuse, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy, God. I got too much going on. I, I'll do it later, God. I'll, I'll obey you later. I'll, I'll do what I know you want me to do. I, I just got so much going on. It, it's, it's the excuse of I'm just too busy. But they weren't too busy to build their own homes. They were just too busy while they were building their own homes to do what God had told them to do. So again, it's not wrong to focus on your home, right, and your own priorities and those things, but not at the expense of disobeying what God has told you to do. And so God's saying, you're, you're busy, but you're busy pursuing your own dream and your own kingdom instead of my kingdom. They were choosing personal busyness and pursuing their kingdom over seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus said. And if we're not careful, we can allow the busyness of our lives to crowd out God and his mission and who he's called you to be. And moms and dads, let me speak to us for a moment. We can be so busy with our kids, putting them here and running there, that the thing that we're communicating to them is not that God is priority. It's hard. I get it. But we need to be careful and what we're spending our time on. It's not that those things are wrong or bad or evil. They're good things, right? But they're not good things if they're taking priority over the God things. And so God confronts the excuses of his people. And he says, no more excuses. So what has God asked you to do? What's he impressed upon you to do that you just keep giving excuse after excuse after excuse for not following through? What excuse do you need to say no to so you can say yes to doing what God has called and asked you to do? And then we, we keep going here. And so God says no excuses. And then in verses 6 through 11, I think we see God give his reasons. He's just exposed the reasons his people gave for not putting him first. So now God's going to give the reasons why he says, here's why I want you to rebuild the temple. Here's why I want you to do what I've called you to do. Verses 6 through 11. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. If that's not a symbol right there of going, when you pursue your own thing at the expense of God, you just are left empty. It doesn't satisfy. And then he goes on. God says, thus the Lord of hosts, think about the direction of your life. Consider your ways. In verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. And here's the first reason I want us to see. That I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
God says, I want you to put me first. I want you to rebuild the temple so that I can receive pleasure through it, so that I can be glorified. God's people had forgotten why and for whom they existed. Israel, God's people at this time, they'd forgotten that they existed for him, not them. They were created for his glory. God said so in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. He says, I created you for my glory, he said. For my glory. And they'd forgotten that. They'd forgotten that God was the one that chose them to be his people. They'd forgotten that God was the one that rescued them out of 400 and some years of slavery from Egypt. They'd forgotten that God was the one who provided for them while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They'd forgotten that God was the one who gave them a king when they wanted one. God, they'd forgotten that God was the one that had delivered them from enemy after enemy after enemy. They'd forgotten that God had poured out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace over them. And they'd begun to be distracted by their own pursuits, building their own kingdoms. And God said, no, you, you exist for me. You were created to bring me glory. That's your purpose. And God knows that. And he's like, what I'm trying to do is to help you live out your purpose. That's what I'm trying to help you do in rebuilding the temple is to put me first because that's why you're here. The Apostle Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 6. He's writing to the church and he says, to God or for God we exist. Ephesians chapter 1, the, the entire first chapter all the way to verse 14, over and over Paul says to the church, he says, I've redeemed you, I've forgiven you, I've rescued you, I've put the Holy Spirit in you to the praise of his glory. Church, we do not exist for our own gain or for our own kingdoms. We exist for him, for his glory, to make much of him. We are not the sun, we are the moon. What's the, when you look at the moon at night and it's shining, whose light is it reflecting? Its own? The sun. That's our purpose, to reflect the light of Christ. Like you heard about now, house churches are reflecting the light of Christ. That's why we exist. And God says, I know that. That's your purpose. So when you rebuild this temple, you are experiencing and living out in that moment the purpose for why I rescued you and redeemed you and have forgiven you. Rebuilding the temple is simply an opportunity to bring God joy. So when whatever it is that God is impressing upon you to do, it's for the glory of God and for you to live out the purpose for why he saved you. A second reason that I think we see God wanting his people to rebuild the temple is in verses 9 through 11. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, check this out. Check what God says here. When you brought it home, who blew it away? God did. God blew it away. Why? It's like God knows what they're going to ask that question. It's like, God, why did you do that? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew. Because of this, because you're living in disobedience to me, here's what's happened. Verse 10. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called, I, God is speaking here, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. What's God doing? He's disciplining his people. He's saying, you're living in disobedience. I've asked you to do this. And you're about pursuing your own kingdom while ignoring my kingdom. And so I'm the one 
that's had to create this drought and call this drought. Why? Why would God do that? Well, because he's a loving father. And Hebrews tells us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Right? I, I remember, as, as some of you know, we lived in the Republic of Ireland for two and a half years. And over there, they drive on the other side of the road. Not an easy thing to get used to. Well, when we came back from Ireland, I started working for a commercial cleaning company doing um, business sales, outside business sales for them. So I would drive my car, go to business, and try to sell them office cleaning. Well, I remember not long after we came back from Ireland, pulling out of a parking lot of a business, and I can't tell you why, but in my mind, it was, I was in Ireland. I, I don't know why I'm like that. It just... In my mind, I was thinking I was in Ireland. So I pull out of this parking lot and start driving on the left side of the road. Here, that's not a good thing. I'm just cruising. I'm just not thinking anything about it at all until I see this car coming in my lane. First thought going through my head is, he's in the wrong lane. That's honest. I thought, I'm like, what's he doing in my lane? And then we got closer, and then... By God's grace, it hit me. I'm in the wrong lane. You know, I move over. I'm like, thank you, Lord. You know, just like all the, listen, sometimes when we as God's people are driving in the wrong lane, God will send warning after warning after warning. Why? Because he loves us. And because he knows that the best life for you is a life where you are putting him first. But sometimes when we are driving in the wrong lane, God will give us warning after warning and warning. And sometimes we have to crash in order to wake up and see that we've been living in the wrong lane for a long time. Why would God do that? Why? I think this leads us to a third reason why God wants us his, and wants his people to, to put him first, to rebuild the temple. And, and we kind of have to take a sneak peek to chapter 2 to see this. And it's in verse 17 of chapter 2. And so God, God says, I, I want you to put me first for my glory. I, I don't want to have to discipline you to, to get your attention. But, but the reason I do, and, and here's the third reason. Verse 17, God says, in chapter 2 of Haggai, he says, verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Here it is. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You know why God does that? Because he wants you to experience his presence. He wants to be with his people. So like a loving father, he will correct us. And he will do whatever is necessary to get us to recognize our sin, wake us up, repent of our sin, and be brought back into the glorious, intimate fellowship of the Father. That's why. Because he's loving like that. Because he loves us like that. And it's possible that some of you or some of you know people who are experiencing the discipline of the Lord right now. And they're going through it. And it might feel unloving, but actually, it's like a loving dad who will say, you know, I love you too much to let you continue to drive in the wrong lane. So I'm going to give you warning sign after warning sign to bring you back to me. To me, he says. And, and hear me on this. Our disobedience to God isn't always the reason we experience hard times. Okay, don't, that's not what I'm saying. 
but it can be a reason. You tracking with me on that? It's not always the reason we suffer. Not at all. But it can be. And I think we're, we're not teaching truth if, if we don't say that. Because that's, that's what I think we're seeing here. God is disciplining his people because he loves them and he wants them to return to him and experience his presence. And so as God's people, we live for his glory, not our own. Like the moon, you're intended to reflect the glorious beauty of Christ, the sun. And it's when we get distracted pursuing our own kingdom, right? It's when we forget that he loved us first. It's when we forget that God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. It's when we forget the grace upon grace upon grace that God has poured out on us that we begin to drive in the wrong lane. All right? But for those of you that you're putting God first, there's something beautiful here too. And we're going to see that next. So, so, so what do we do here? What's, what's going to be the response of God's people? God's exposed their excuses, the reasons for not putting him first. And then he's told them, here's the reasons why I want you to put me first. What are they going to do? What's going to be their response? Verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the, Je- the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Check it out. I love this. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. As you put God first, as you live in obedience to him, you're experiencing the presence of the Lord. You experience the presence of God as you're putting him first, walking in obedience to him, doing what you know he's asked you and called you to do. Didn't Jesus say this? Right? Jesus said, he said, I want you to go and I want you to go make disciples. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to be obedient. And then what's he say at the end? And as you're doing this, as you're doing what I've asked you to do, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's something that we experience supernaturally as we obey Christ. Because we can't do that in our own strength. That's why the Spirit takes over and helps us do the hard thing in following Christ. And putting him first. It's beautiful. So for those of you that say, I'm trying to, I'm putting God first. Like, it's, keep going. Don't give up. Because that's when you experience in a tangible and palpable way the very presence of God with you. Because without him, we can't do this. We can't put him first. And I love this. About It says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord in verse 12. And then in verse 14, it says, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And so God says, no excuses for his glory. He says, for my glory, put me first. Can you imagine, just imagine for a moment, every follower of Christ in this room said, God, no more excuses for your glory, I am putting you first. Can you imagine what that would say to the, to the people that you live life with? Imagine what that would say to the kids in your home, to the people you work with, to the people on campus. If there's just this mass group of people said, no more excuses, no more pursuit of my kingdom first. I'm going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm putting it first for his glory. 
Can you imagine what that would say? And so, here's the challenge. Here's the next step for this week. And ask the band to come at this time. And here's the challenge. Here's the next step. What's that something that God has told you to do? Has it been impressing upon you to, to just take action and to do it? The step of obedience. We've given examples like be baptized, like Owen we, we heard about. Or, or to just maybe have that family over for, for dinner. Or to start that Bible study in your neighborhood. Or to go plant that house or whatever it is. Or to end that unhealthy relationship. What is it that you know God has told you to do and you just haven't done it yet? This week, no excuses. For his glory, put God first. And as you do, God says, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so, as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, you say, well, where's Jesus in this? Right? We should see Jesus in chapter 1, right? Absolutely. You know how we see Jesus in chapter 1? Jesus said in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. No excuses, Father. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to be there on a cross, bleeding out for your sins and mine. That's what he did. And he said, no excuses. And then in John 17, he prays this. He says, Father, I've brought you glory on earth. I've completed the work you gave me to do. You know how we see Jesus here? We see a Savior. We have a Savior who said no excuses. For his glory, I'll go to the cross so that you and I can be with him forever. Church, can we hear amen? Amen. We have a Savior that said no excuses. None. For his glory, I will go to the cross and I will rise again so that you and I, church, can be with him forever. God, you're good. Jesus, you're so good. I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you said no excuses and you went to the cross for me. While I was still sinning, Lord Jesus, you went to the cross. Thank you. Thank you for being obedient to death, even death on a cross. We love you, Jesus. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, Jesus, I pray that we would remember you. Remember what you've done for us. And that because of your sacrifice on the cross and faith in you, God, that you give us, you never leave us nor forsake us. You're always with us.